Good morning, everyone. We'll have two uh, short passages today, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, and then chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And then chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Uh, we thank you that you have given us business to be about, Lord, and um, you have given us a time and a season, as, as this book says, Lord. We pray that you would uh, bless this time, Lord, as uh, Bob preaches to us. We pray that we would hear your words uh, as he speaks, Lord, and uh, take them to heart, Lord, that we would be attentive to these things and that they would be recalled to us in years to come, Lord, uh, when they are perhaps most needful, Lord. You know all things. You arrange all things well. We thank you for these, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. Well, I have to confess, I was, I, I've been reading through Ecclesiastes uh, daily, and, and, uh, and when I got uh, closer to the end, I said to myself, well, I, I think I'll take a look at one of the more modern uh, translations, which being interpreted means uh, paraphrased. And, and I, I came upon this statement in uh, chapter 12. And if it doesn't look anything like what you read in your Bible, it doesn't look like anything I read in mine either. This is, this is from the message, and it is really a paraphrase, but, but I, I thought you'd get a, a little giggle out of it, especially you older folks. Starts out, in old age, your body no longer serves you so well. Muscles slacken, grip weakens, joints stiffen, the shades are pulled down on the world. Is that cataracts? I'm not sure. You can't come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. 
The hum of the household fades away. I guess that means you're losing your hearing. You are weakened now by bird, awakened now by bird song. Hikes to the mountains are a thing of the past. Even a stroll down the road has its terrors. Your hair turns apple blossom white, adorning a fragile and impotent matchstick body. Yes, you're well on your way to eternal rest while your friends make plans for your funeral. Now, is that a hallmark moment? Can't you see sending a greeting card to your friends with that on it for inspirational purposes only? It's incredible. And, and the reality is, uh, this is a hard book, uh, indeed. I got a kick out of Dr. Walkie's assessment in his uh, Old Testament uh, theology. He says, the book of Ecclesiastes is the black sheep of the canon of biblical books. It is the delight of skeptics and the despair of saints. Well, you know, when our kids were young, we had uh, Bible Memory Association. We did a lot of them. A, B, you know, we had all those verses that go with it. Strange. I don't remember one coming out of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Can't you see that? Uh, v, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Oh, that's a great verse to keep with you all the time. This is a strange, strange book. And the way I came across it was, was sort of providential. I almost said accidental, but providential. Uh, they needed someone to teach the books of uh, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon in the foundations class. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do that. And by the way, that's a, that's a daunting task. Two of the hardest books in all the Bible, and you get... 40 minutes <laughs> to give the essence of it. Well, I got through that with my hide last week, and when Tom's physical situation came up, it became evident that it may be wise to give him a little reprieve, not knowing how all of that would shake out, and as we see today, that wasn't a bad idea. And, and so I said, well, okay, I, I can preach on the, the book of Ecclesiastes. I didn't really know what I was saying. It's one thing to teach about the book of Ecclesiastes. It's another thing to actually try to preach it. And, and, and especially when you read verses like this. This is Ecclesiastes 6.12. Who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow for... Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Hmm. Or this verse, uh, 10.14. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? 9.11. I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor uh, to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Whoa, there's a motivational text. Can't you see one of those motivational texts as speakers trying to come up with this verse? Good grief. Okay, here's another one. 311. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. As I read that, it comes off something like God puts within men's heart 
a yearning and a desire to know about eternity. <laughs> Don't bother, you won't figure it out. Mm, that's another wonderful passage. And then here's one in, in chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. I said to myself concerning the sons of men, God has surely tested them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath, and there is no advantage for man over beast. For all is vanity. All go to the same place. All came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows uh, that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? Or this last one. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is uh, a place of righteousness there is wicked. In the place of justice there is wickedness. In the place of righteousness there is wickedness. It's like everything's turned upside down. Well, I have to confess, I came as close to a panic attack as I've ever been, midweek, and I'm saying to myself, good. Grief, what am I going to say about this? How do you preach a past uh, these things like this? What do you say? Well, my problem is not uh, alone, but I will say this. Not every text in Ecclesiastes is a horror text. There actually are some, some, some decent ones. For instance, one of my favorites for funerals is in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. A good name is better than good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. I really, I, I really taken that up in terms of my, my preaching at funerals, and that is, death is a time where you think about what happens when I die. And it's really important to think about that. You can go to a party... And let me tell you, you can go to a, a Super Bowl watch party and you won't deal with the issues of life. Go to a funeral and you're dealing now with the things that really matter. So there are decent <laughs> texts. And I would say, too, there's, there are a number of references to God. But they leave me kind of cold because I don't see in the author I don't see a heart for God. I see God as kind of off in the distance. And this whole thing about vanity, in a sense, Solomon is whining and complaining about God's administration of the world. Vanity doesn't mean anything. Uh, it's a vapor. Well, that obviously uh, creates problems for preachers like me. But... I noticed also, when, when you look at uh, commentaries, it's very interesting. You want to find, commentaries always disagree. That's their job. That's how they publish more books. But the reality is, scholars are all over the map with this thing. And what that says to me is, they don't get it either. Obviously, there isn't kind of one sense where they all get on the same boat and say, this is where this thing is going. People ignore it or avoid it. <laughs> Let's face it. You'll go to the book of Proverbs over and over and over again. 
But I would bet you that if the pages of Ecclesiastes stuck together, you wouldn't know it. I mean, it's just, who goes there? For encouragement? For enlightenment? You're just saying, what? No. <laughs> I got enough pessimism in my life without this. And, and by the way, I think Solomon is depressed. I mean, is this guy really happy with the way things are going? I think he's depressed. So that presents all kinds of problems, does it not? Uh, and, and I'll just tell you, here, here's been my resolution. Solomon is a mess. That's what it all comes down to. This guy's a mess. And, and, and there's some wisdom mixed up in there, but it's kind of intermingled with what? And, and, and some of his stuff is not bad secular advice. Remember where he says, uh, cast your bread upon the waters and whatever, I suppose you could say, you know, invest. And, and then he says in the same text, uh, you know, invest it like seven or eight different places because you don't know which one's going to make it and which one isn't. Your stockbroker would tell you that. But what has that got to do with godly living? It seems to me it's, uh, it's lacking. And that's why I said to myself midweek, how in the world do I preach this thing? Well, if Solomon is a mess, then let's just ask ourselves, historically, how did he get there? And that's where the other books of the Bible are helpful to us, I think. So let's just take a look. When we look at 1 Kings, we see he really had a glorious beginning. By the way, not unlike Uzziah. Here he is, a young man. Remember when, when David says of, of Solomon, my son is young and inexperienced, he needs all the help I can give him? Well, there was an element of truth to that. And, and Solomon is basically saying to God in, in his prayer, you know, God, I really am young and inexperienced. I need a lot of help. And, and therefore, he doesn't ask for prosperity. He doesn't ask for long life. He doesn't ask for victory over his enemies. He asks for wisdom. There is a humility there, by the way. Go back to Proverbs. Humility precedes and is foundational to wisdom. If you don't think you need to learn, then you won't. So th there is, I think, a humility in the beginning. I find it interesting in chapter 3, there's a kind of a sequence because it starts by telling us that he brought Pharaoh's daughter up but, but listen to his words, because we're going to see about foreign wives later on. But, but he says, he brought her up from the city of David to the house which he had built for her. For he said, my wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places are holy where the ark of the Lord has entered. In other words, he's saying, in effect, I know she's a pagan. So I can't have her live over here because that's holy. So he sort of put a firewall between Mrs. Pharaohette and, and, and himself, and, but that firewall quickly disappears in the midst of 1,000 more women in his marital uh, lineup. So he starts out, he prays for wisdom, we, we commend him for that, and then we see the story of those two prostitutes who are debating whose child it is that has died and which child lives. And he says, you know, cut the child in half and give half to each one. That was, that was great, a great piece of wisdom. 
He did many good things. He constructed the temple, and it was very, very skillfully done. It was a great job. As an architect, Solomon gets a 10. And then you have the writing of many proverbs and songs. This guy was prolific in what he did and in the extent of his wisdom. But he, uh, he, my favorite psalm that he wrote, he wrote two psalms. Um, and one of them was Psalm 72. You know why that psalm is a high point in Solomon's life? Because he's looking around in that psalm and he recognizes there is injustice and things aren't really right on earth. And what does he do? He prays that God would fulfill his covenant promise with David and that someone would come to the throne who would make all things right. Now, who might that be? He's praying for Messiah. See, that was the solution to the problems of this world, was that Christ would come and reign in righteousness and clean this thing up. He had it right there. Man, has he forgotten it in the book of Ecclesiastes. A totally different look that we see from him. Well, there were the accumulation of his chariots and horses. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, and it's pretty clear. God said Israel's king shouldn't do that. You know why? Because the king's going to start depending upon his chariots and horsemen. The more you got, the safer you are. So he thought. But the reality was that wasn't Israel's safety at all. Then there was the acquisition of foreign wives, lots of them. And these wives were not just simply wives. They were political pawns, if you would. You married politically to create alliances. So old Pharaoh is going to be a little slow coming up to sack Israel if his daughter and kids are there. So there's this whole political thing that's going on. And so the more political alliances you need, the more wives you need. And he had plenty of those. Now, I've not heard anybody say this, so I could well be off the charts. But I think that he began to use his wisdom in ways that perhaps were not best. And when you read where he talks about, you know, the number of psalms and, and, and proverbs that he wrote, you're saying, wow, that's incredible. It is. And when you look at the book of Proverbs, those are good ones. But listen to what it says those were about, his knowledge, how his mental horsepower was harnessed in terms of his wisdom. It says, he spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke of animals, birds, and creeping things, and fish. Okay. I just don't get the devotional feel there. I mean, it's great to understand all about fish and all these different things. I'm sure he knew more than anybody about them. So what? When he asked for wisdom... He asked for wisdom in order to judge God's people, in order to discern between good and evil. 
where, where's the, the, the good and evil, the moral element to writing about a fish? I, I, frankly, I don't see it. it. I mean, it just seems to me what it tells us that he occupies his time with is kind of secular stuff. Okay, he's a nature boy. That's good. But what does it accomplish in terms of leading God's people? That's just, at least it's a hint that may be part of his going off the rails. The other part, which I think is more obvious, is his notoriety. In chapter 4 of 1 Kings, it talks about him being so wise that he became one who was sought out for his counsel and, and his wisdom. I can, I can imagine that would be exactly right. And then, of course, there's the Queen of Sheba, right? She comes along, and, and if, if there wasn't an ego booster in that, I don't know what is. She gives a little bit of, of mouthing to your God gave you this. But there, there's, not, there's not really the sense that Solomon is saying, you know this is all God. There's not that feel to it. And she's saying, "What you know, your wisdom surpasses anything I've seen. I got to tell you, I think that he needed a little ego adjustment. And I think he began to believe his press releases from people like the Queen of Sheba. Man, I guess I really am pretty good. And when you read Ecclesiastes, he makes it clear, I was better than anybody else at this. That isn't really humility. Now, think about... Joseph standing before Pharaoh and he's going to interpret his dreams and, and, and Pharaoh's saying, man, you, you, you got it, man. I know you can do this. Joseph says, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't me. This is God. Daniel stands before Nebuchadnezzar to interpret his dream. Nebuchadnezzar says, you're the man. And Daniel says, you need to understand wisdom comes from God. God will tell you what this means. I don't see that kind of humility with, uh, with Solomon. I don't see either in, in Solomon, I don't see a love for God's word. You know, I'm thinking about when God promised to give him wisdom and, and sustain his reign, it was if you love me and keep my commandments. When I read Psalm 119, uh, Verse 71 says, you know, I was afflicted, uh, and then I came back to you because I got into your word. In verse 97 and following, he says, I'm wiser than my professors. I'm wiser than, the, than, than all these wise people because of your word. And there's this whole element of coming to the word, not only for wisdom, but, but for a heart for God. I don't see it. I don't see it with, with Solomon. Maybe I'm mistaken. By the way, just one little side effect. Remember, too, that he was uh, known for his harshness with regard to his slaves. You remember when, uh, when it comes along and, and Rehoboam is supposed to replace him and the people say, we'll follow you. Just lighten up. Lighten up. And his answer is, you haven't seen anything yet. There was a harshness about him that I don't think is, is all that commendable. I wrote myself a little note, and I, I'm not sure I can prove this altogether, but what I said was, where is Solomon's Nathan? Where is Solomon's Nathan? 
Nathan, the guy that takes David aside and says, you're in trouble. I don't see that. And you know what happens? I think when you're the wisest guy in the world, you don't think you need it. I, I think it's, there's a kind of autonomy that comes out of that. Now, I confess, I've already changed my title, and it's not why all just why Christian leaders do, but I'll tell you what. That's one area where, where Christian leaders often, they become regarded as, as really uh, skillful and capable in a certain area, and that kind of works on them. And one of the things that I've seen in many of the failures in these recent years is arrogance and harshness and a refusal to listen to those who have words of advice or correction. I don't see any with Solomon. I don't see him, which I think is a, is a very, very sad thing. And so the danger, I think, for people who are successful and powerful is to have the Lone Ranger complex. I don't need anybody else, not even Tato. You know, they, just, they just don't need anybody else. I got to thinking about that with Elijah. When Elijah wants to turn in his badge and give it all up, God says, what are you doing up here? He says, well, I, I did all these things and, and whatever, and now I've failed, and, and it's all over. What he's really saying is, I'm the only one. And now that I've failed, there isn't anyone. So give up. And God says, well, you know, actually, Elijah, there are a few thousand others around besides you. And to cap it all off, Elisha's twice as good as he is anyway. But it's just that sense of sufficiency and autonomy and independence that I think somehow came about. Now, the next thing I want to do is I want to suggest some passages of Scripture which give us some insight or at least a line of thought to see this thing with Solomon perhaps in a biblical light. And the reason I say that is when you find that expression, under the sun, oh, I had a new title come to mind while I was sitting there, How Solomon Got a Sunburn. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll leave that one out. But under the sun is basically saying, when I look at life, when I look at the world through a secular lens, when I look at the world through a humanistic worldview, hey, folks, it is a mess. And there is no hope because it doesn't, that point of view has no hope. And that's what we see, I think, personified in Solomon. But look at some other texts of Scripture. A, look at Proverbs. Solomon's failure comes largely because he doesn't take his own advice. Proverbs chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 7, watch out for the strange woman, right? <laughs> he has a thousand of them. Woo. By the way, he's a little cynical about that. He says, I can find a thousand men, in a sense, who have some value. I haven't found one woman yet. He says that in Ecclesiastes. I'm just saying that's what he says. And, and, and so you've got these, these words of, of wisdom. There's, there's, there's wisdom in many counselors. He doesn't have them. 
Uh, watch out for your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. That's his problem. He's got a heart problem. Well, anyway, let's move on. I was thinking about Genesis 2 and 3 and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I ended up there because when Solomon asks God for wisdom, he says, wisdom to know good and evil. Now, how do you discern good from evil? I think it comes from God's word. I think that Solomon, with all of his intellectual horsepower, hey, he's a superstar. His IQ probably is 300. Okay. But that doesn't help you discern good from evil. God does. God's word does. And so here we are, in a sense, Solomon has his own tree. It's his brain. He began to discern good and evil through his own intellectual means himself. He was autonomous in that. And isn't it interesting that that is exactly the area in which Satan tempts? You can be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what he asked for. I think he starts going off a trail of discerning good and evil based upon his rational powers rather than on God's written word. We talked about Psalm 72. He's in that psalm, written by Solomon, he's looking for Messiah. That's a future view. I got to tell you, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you want to ask yourself, where is the future? He, he always kind of ends up at the grave. And so he says, you know, whether you're a man or animal, you're, you're just dust returning to dust. And he sees that it sort of ends there. Where the reality is, no, 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 if you have an eternal perspective, it just begins there. And it isn't that he denies the existence of eternity, he just doesn't dwell on it. Because it's something beyond his comprehension and his grasp. That's where Psalm 73 comes in, is it not? Here's Asaph. I, I love to look at Ecclesiastes through the eyes of Psalm 73. Asa, we already had a warm-up on that this morning. But in Psalm 73, Asaph is grousing to God, and he's saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who keep his commandments. And then he's basically saying, in effect, hey, God, I've been working like crazy, keeping your commandments. And how come it is that this guy who's a pagan is doing so well and, and poor me, I'm righteous and I'm suffering. He's saying, God, I don't like the way you're running things. And he actually gets to the point halfway through that psalm where he basically says, they have become, these wicked people have become scoffers and mockers at God. And I said to myself, you know what? It isn't worth it. I might as well just give it up. That's, he said, my feet came close to slipping. And then he says, I just plan on, you know, it, it's probably better to just give it up. Until I came to the sanctuary of God, all of a sudden life is now viewed through the eternal lens. Their prosperity and their ease is short-lived. Eternity is long. If the nearness of God is your good, as Asaph concludes, then whatever draws you near to him is good. 
whatever draws you from him is not. For the wicked, their prosperity was not good. It actually separated them from God. For Asaph, when he got his mind straight, thinking eternally, he said, well, wait a minute. I'm closer to God now than I ever was. And the fact is, when we get to eternity, it's going to go on forever. It's a win-win. That was the viewpoint of Asaph. Solomon doesn't have that turning point where he spins on his heel and says, wait, I've been looking at it wrong through the wrong lens. And so he spends virtually all of his time describing the first half of Psalm 73, and he focuses on the, 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 the sour thought of, of how things seem inequitable. By the way, I, I would just toss this in, but if there is not an eternity, friends, there's going to be a lot of injustice that's left dangling. Hell is what makes things right with regard to the wicked, is it not? You need an eternity, not only to bless the righteous, but to punish the wicked. That's the, anyway, for Solomon, he's only in the first half of Psalm 73. Somehow the last half he never gets to. Psalm 119, we already talked about, but here's the psalmist's love for God's word, and he finds God's word is the source of his wisdom not his uh, intellectual horsepower. Look at Job. Here's Job who is going through this intense suffering. God has taken away all this prosperity. Job's whining and, and mumbling, and God finally says to him, uh, Job, did you hang the stars while you were uh, you know, on your break? You know, and, and what God is saying is, I'm not only sovereign, I'm good. And when you take a good God and you blend that with a sovereign God, you can't lose. In the end, Job, I don't care about his prosperity doubling. What I care about is his heart is now drawn to God. I don't see that with Solomon. Think of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. I'm really focusing on this lack of eternal perspective that we see with Solomon in Ecclesiastes. He says, All these died in faith, Old Testament saints, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking about that country from which they went out, they would have had, a, had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. All Old Testament saints had resurrection hope. They saw their hope was beyond the grave, not within this life. That element seems to be missing, and that's why Solomon talks so much about under the sun. It's all about life now, life here, life through my intellectual glasses. So what do we learn? Well, one is, I think we really gain insight into what the contribution of this, the book of Ecclesiastes is. 
I've told you this before, and I'll say it again, but every book in the Bible, you need to ask yourself, what is the unique contribution of this book to the entire Word of God? When you come to the book of Esther, the contribution is Israel was free to return to the land. They were encouraged and facilitated to return to the land, and Esther is about Jewish people who chose to stay where they didn't have to stay and they shouldn't stay. So we ought to expect not great things to come out of the book of Esther. What's the unique contribution of uh, Ecclesiastes? I think it's to see the folly of one who has tremendous assets and resources but who looks at life and lives life through a secular, humanistic lens. I I don't think we see any better illustration of failure than with Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's got his successes elsewhere, but not here. And I think what that ought to say to us is, we ought to be really careful. Here's a guy who didn't have to ask God for more because he had it all. What do you want, another thousand wives? He had, a, he had all the wealth. He, he had everything. He was, he was uh, politically and, and militarily in control. The land was at peace. He was there. In a, in a sense, it was his earthly heaven. And you know what? Apart from intimacy with God, it was worthless. It was vanity. He, you know, I remember one time talking to a homeless guy, and I don't remember whether it was in a prison or where it was, But he said to me, I was at the top of my game. I had climbed the ladder of success, and I got out to the top, and I found that it wasn't worth being there. And he became a homeless guy. Success wasn't that good. And I think you could say why successful people fail is because success often does not lead to intimacy with God and a looking toward our eternal hope. No wonder Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Well, let's think of some other things. Take heed for your heart. That's what Proverbs says. Take heed for your heart, for from it flow all the issues of life. I think think Solomon had a heart problem. I don't think we see a man whose heart is devoted to God. He started that way, granted. I just don't think he ended that way. I think in our world, intelligence and and academic achievement is a big, big thing. But it really didn't do him much good. And I want to, I'm going to make an extension and extrapolation of my terms. I I think that when you look at the things that God gives you as gifts, there is a way in which they can be used for service. There is a way in which they can be abused for status. And I find it interesting that in all the gifts that God gave to Solomon, did it make him, in the end, did it make him a better, more gracious king? I, I don't really think so. Now, for us, I'm jumping over now to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, spiritual gifts. 
God gives each one of us not only a spiritual gift. This is early chapter 12. A spiritual gift, he gives us a sphere of ministry, a place where that gift is used, and a measure of success. I think that what happens to people who are highly gifted people is they find the temptation to prostitute that gift and somehow to use it for gain. You know, Simon in Acts where he says, hey, I want to buy that gift. You know, I could really make money on this. I think there's a way in which people find their gifts and the skills God has given them as a way in which they attain status, significance, power. That's... uh, That's not the way. We can abuse the things, and certainly I think Solomon did. All right, here's here's one that's kind of come on me late, but I think it's true. Beware of the human explanations for life and how it is. And I ended up thinking one in terms of Acts chapter 17. Here's the Athenians Paul comes along and you got to say, oh, remember now Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. Paul comes to Athens, starts preaching about Jesus and says, this is new. We want to hear about this. Those guys were philosophers. And they hadn't seen this particular brand of it. So they wanted to squeeze it for all it was worth. But notice Paul doesn't argue philosophy with him. He gives him Jesus. I think that's a, a, a critical thing. So I got my, in my mind, I went to Colossians chapter 2, where it says, in effect, I pray that you might find yourself immersed in Christ, in whom is all wisdom. Do you want biblical wisdom? You want Jesus. That's where wisdom comes from, is him. And so if you're going to pursue real wisdom, you have to pursue Jesus. And too often, I think, we start using those intellectual capacities God's given to us and trying to reason it out ourselves. And that's why I've always struggled with Colossians where he says, beware of philosophy. Does that mean you don't take a philosophy class in college? No, I think what it's saying is beware of all of those efforts to intellectually explain life from a secular point of view. They'll wander all over the barn. But if you've got Christ, you have wisdom. I think that's really important to know. All right, a couple more things, and that's about evangelism. I remember uh, when Emmanuel Christian uh, preached on uh, the book of Ecclesiastes or through the Bible series, he loved that book and he said, well, that's the book I always use for evangelism in the, in the East. And I had to kind of work to wrap my mind around that. But think about it. One, really the philosophy we see in Ecclesiastes is the philosophy that's contemporary today, is it not? People despair about life, and and they see, often they see death as the end, and I think it explains why we see so much suicide. If indeed it all ends in the grave, then why not end this agony that I'm in right now? Because it's no more. (laughs) The sad part is, 
eternity is there. And that decision to take your life is an eternal one that seals, in effect, your destiny. But I think in evangelism, you have to start, as it were, with Ecclesiastes before you're really ready to come to Christ. I think that you have to come to the point of saying, all of my efforts, all of the stuff that I've done, all of the success that I've experienced in my life, when it comes to heaven and it comes to righteousness that pleases God, it doesn't cut for anything. It is vanity. And the gospel says, that's okay. You needed to know that so that you could come to Christ and find what's real and precious and eternal. If you happen to be here this morning and you've never come to Christ, in a sense, we try sometimes to keep people from going where Ecclesiastes is going. They're already there. Just show them that that's futile and that the gospel is as it were, the way out. One last word. Depressed Christians are lousy witnesses. I, I see a lot of depressed Christians around. I really do. They get all worked up about this thing or another, and they're fretting and they're fuming and whatever. Peter says that we are to be ready to explain to people the hope that we have and that hope, I might add, is hope that is found in the midst of affliction and persecution. This world desperately needs hope. <laughs> you won't find it in Ecclesiastes. You will find the need for hope in Ecclesiastes. But hope ought to be written on every face of every believer in the midst of all the garbage that's going on in this world today. The world ought to say, I don't know what you've got, but I need that. I think this book can really help us in evangelism if we look at it that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Ecclesiastes. It's one of those books I just assumed passed by, but it's there, and we've got to deal with it. Thank you for showing us that it isn't life as we see it under the sun, but it's in the sun, where there is true hope. Help us to, to really experience that hope and that joy that's missing, I think, with Solomon and Ecclesiastes. And I just want to say once more, would you please be with Tom uh, as he's in the hospital? Would you give him recovery and strength uh, and return him to active ministry in Jesus' name? Amen.